Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is James Olivia Chu Hillman. James Olivia is a relational life and leadership coach and a mediator, facilitator, and enthusiastic advocate of necessary, uncomfortable, and life-changing conversations. They work with people who want more joyful connection and less suffering in their relationships with themselves, the people they love, and the world. Before we begin, this podcast conversation is between adults and contains a little adult language, so if you have little ones near you, you might want to use your headphones. Welcome to the podcast, James Olivia. I'm so delighted to have you here. Thank you. I am delighted to be here. So most of us are, of course, interested in relationships, but you take it to a whole different level. So what prompted this this interest in right relationship. And I'll, I'll, I'll ask you to define that just so that people know what you're referring to. Okay. Um, yeah, you, that's really kind of you to downplay it as interest. I'm going to call it an obsession. <laughs> <laughs> um, what prompted it? Okay. What do you want first? The, what prompted it or define it? Well, yeah, maybe let people know what, what right relationship is. Cause I know that's what you talk about. That's what you, you have real clarity on in your work and let's begin there. Okay. Um, Oh, the irony is that I don't have clarity at all about what right relationship is or isn't for somebody (laughs) else, but I have (laughs) questions that I ask people about how to move them in the direction of what right relationship might be for them. Um, I ask, is there room for you? Is there room (laughs) for you in this relationship? And the relationship that I'm talking about isn't like romantic partnership exclusively. I'm talking about in mm-hmm. your relationship with your, with your child or your children, in your relationship with your, with your business, in your relationship with um, your politics or the earth, or when I say your politics or the earth, maybe I should say and, um, your, okay. your body and your, the food systems that you, um, that you inhabit with you know, your relationship with technology and other humans in your community. So I'm talking about all the relationships that you're in in your life. So is there room for you in these relationships? And also, are these just and sustainable relationships? Hmm. So when I say right, I don't mean like, is this a binary? Is this a right or wrong relationship? I mean, is there regard for you? in it? Is there regard for the other people or other beings and entities in this relationship? And can this be sustained in a way where everyone is nourished and everyone can thrive? Mm. Ah, that's great. I love that. And, and your obsession, how did that arise? <laughs> um, I say this only half jokingly, that old adage, we, we teach what we need to learn. Mm. And I think, you know, if I had been modeled across the board, really, really, you know, healthy, just and sustainable relationships where there was room for everyone, 
I probably wouldn't think anything of it the same way like people who are extraordinarily good at math don't make very good math teachers. Right. Um, and not to say that I didn't have love or loving relationships in my you know, formative years, but I think living in the systems that we live in, living in you know, patriarchy and capitalism and white supremacy and all these cultures of contempt, all over the place, we're not necessarily modeled how to be in sustainable, just relationship. And I think it was, you know, a series of, I don't like using the word, the phrase failed relationships. Um, I don't know if, if I really buy into like a failed or successful relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have been divorced once. So I think that was part of it. It was like, oh, wow, I'm looking at this as as a failed relationship, not necessarily as a you know personal failure, but a relationship that didn't work out the way that that anybody in the relationship intended it to. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing that many, many people who have been divorced or are considering divorce um, are toying with some version of the question maybe not in this conscious language, but like what does right relationship look like when the relationship as it is, is no longer sustainable. Mm. So, and that's so challenging. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So challenging to even look at much less accomplish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Is that from personal experience? It is. <laughs> <laughs> In the situations where uh, it's been necessary to to uh, try to negotiate something after a relationship has has um, ended in the way that, as you said, in the way that everyone had hoped, um, it's been hard to find a place where you can still be in connection, and the regret or the lack of having achieved what it is you were looking for um, without that getting in the way. Mm-hmm. Of, of carving out something new or being creative about what's new. Um, yeah, I think that's challenging. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're bringing up something that is really um, fascinating is a weird word to use around it, but um, that really interests me. And I guess concerns me, especially in my work is, you know, how do we, because ultimately when we're you know estranged from someone or we, we completely transition a relationship from being very intimate to being more distant, what we're doing is essentially setting um, big boundaries. Like we're, mm. we're setting big boundaries in a way that those relationships haven't necessarily known before. Right. And, and it's hard to, it can be hard to set boundaries and it can be very hard to be boundaried. Right. <laughs> to have, have somebody say, oh, this relationship as it is now um, doesn't make room for me and isn't sustainable for, for me or for us. And I, I can't necessarily um, you know, be my best or love you the best in this proximity. So now what? And that question you're bringing up, like how, how then do we stay in connection that is not so painful? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's really the key question. Well, I, I know that you um, you talk about right relationship resulting in 
more joyful connection, less suffering. Um, and, and both in relationship with ourselves and the people we love and the world. And that what you've been, what we've been talking about kind of speaks to that. How, do, how does looking at right relationship or this, I think for a lot of people, maybe a more conscious or new way of looking at relationships that you have, are developing, how, how, do you, how do you get more connection and less suffering in that context? <laughs> That's the ultimate question, right? Right. Um, well, okay, so that's the big question. Like, how do we get more joyful connection with somebody who we don't necessarily uh, want to be around or they don't want to be around us? Mm, yeah. And I don't know if there's an answer. Like, I don't know if there's a good answer to that question. I, when I say more joyful connection and less suffering, I don't necessarily always mean with the person we think it means. Mm. So... Um, like in any separation or breakup, I'm guessing, I'm not any, but in, in many separations, separations and breakups, one of the things that we're confronted with is a huge loss of intimacy. Like mm. I have this, this familiarity with this person and this consistent intimacy with this person, whether it's a friend or a lover or um, a parent, like I just have this connection with this person. And that like with, with bigger boundaries in place or with separation that goes away. And now who will I be connected with and who will I have that joyful connection with if I'm not having it with this person? And one of the things I think we tend to do is like, um, keep either looking for it with that same person or looking for it elsewhere and not coming home to our relationship with ourself first. That, that our, a lot of our relational suffering starts with us. It doesn't actually start with other people. Right. Yeah. 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 And to take this, you know, even more expansively into different kinds of relationships. So since this podcast is really around um, business and talking with leaders and entrepreneurs, I mean, the, what you're talking about is not limited to, as you said yourself at the beginning, it's not limited to intimate relationships and the, changes that you go through there. I mean, you go through changes in any kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that you, you talk about having a passion for ask, asking questions that make us squirm a bit. <laughs> um, why do you think, why is that important? I mean, why, uh, why are you making us so uncomfortable? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, that's such a beautiful question. Thank you. I haven't had to articulate it the way I'm about to before. So I'm excited to, for these words to come out of my mouth. It might be a little bit of a jumble because I've not said this in this way before. Um, I, I hold discomfort as one of the places where, where we grow. Mm. And if we want more joyful connection, we have to grow so that we have capacity for it. Hmm. So we can stay the same. We don't, we don't have to be uncomfortable and we don't have to grow. And we also won't have access to more joyful connection if we don't. I don't believe. Mm. I love that. And having this discomfort related to capacity, I love that connection. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, being an entrepreneur, as you well know as well, and this is something I talk about quite a bit with my clients is, uh, that being an entrepreneur, it's 
it's something you have to be intimately familiar with this discomfort and willingness to be uncomfortable. And do you think that that kind of familiarity that we inevitably have as entrepreneurs, because we're always stretching our capacity and growing to use the words you just used, but um, is that kind of a skill that you, have you noticed that being something that extends to relationship as well? Or is it kind of a discrete thing that we go, okay, I'm willing to be comfortable. I'm willing to be uncomfortable here, but please don't make me be uncomfortable over here. <laughs> you know, that's a really great question. I don't, I think some people have just a deep affinity for growth and mm. the discomfort I like to pretend that I do have uh, like that I that I love discomfort. I actually don't. I hate it so much. Um, <laughs> and I like the result. Like I really, really love the result of yeah. growth. I love the result of increased capacity to hold more of my own human experience and the humanity mm -hmm. of other people, um, and to just you know be present in the world and and do the things that I came to do. So the more, the more I grow, the more I have capacity for that and the more fun I have doing yeah. it as well. Um, and I don't know, I don't know how well it transfers sometimes. Like if we're explicit about it, I'm going to, let's see, let me use an example. So when I started diving into more, learning about social justice. I had an appetite, like just this insatiable appetite to learn and learn and learn and grow and be uncomfortable and uh, like, you know, have, have people push me to my edges in conversation and really examine all the ways that I was you know, showing up online and in my business and you know, in my, like in places where I was active in the community and I didn't necessarily want to look at what that looked like at home. Mm. The very same thing. And one of the things that I teach really, really actively now is how supremacy culture shows up in our intimate and our most important relationships. Mm. But I wouldn't be able to teach that if I hadn't been confronted by my partner who was like, hey, this thing that we're doing, like this dynamic that we have at home how is that different from white supremacy culture? And I was like, Oh shit, it isn't. Mm, wow. And it was, it was deeply uncomfortable and I wouldn't have looked at it on my own. I don't think without, without Ben having said something and challenged me. And I'm, I was like, okay, this is, this is a place I haven't been looking because I didn't necessarily want that discomfort in this one comfortable place in my life that I was enjoying. Yeah, I think that um, something I'm noticing in myself too is is uh, I if I'm actively working on something right now, I'm also deeply learning in the realm of of racism and social justice, and deeply uncomfortable there, and both in what I'm noticing in myself and around me, and um, and what I'm learning feels very on the on an edge for me, mm -hmm. but. Um, I, I notice myself feeling like I just want somewhere, somewhere to go where I don't have to feel so uncertain and, um, and, and feel more comfortable. Like there's a place, and I think that's 
you know, human in a way that, I mean, you can't always be uh, pushing that edge or um, sometimes you just need to rest and rejuvenate and, and be able to do that too. But um, yeah, something I've noticed as well is, is there, um, is that I, I know that you recently launched a program that you call the disobedience school, which I have to admit sort of conjures up a sort of fiendish delight in me to hear the name, <laughs> but you say that showing up in our wholeness is disobedient. So talk a little bit about, you know, disobedience and misbehavior and how that all, why is that important? Why, why do we even need to look at it from that perspective? Ooh, I'm about to speak your language, Ursula. <laughs> um, compliance upholds the status quo, hmm. which is not necessarily a terrible thing in some cases if the status quo is, is working out for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and within systems of oppression, the status quo is not working out for, for everyone as we are getting clearer and clearer and clearer about in, you know, in the time of COVID and uprising. Um, the status quo is not okay for everyone. So being compliant and well-behaved and um, going along to get along, this doesn't necessarily work. And where we're going to have impact, we're also going to have to misbehave. Mm. Yeah, I, I can see that. I, I, what do you think are the, the expectations of capitalism and white supremacy and cis-heteropatriarchy, for example, that you think we need to misbehave um, what a, against or, or to counter the effects of those cultures of dominance? Oh, that's a whole, like, this is, how long do you want to talk about this, Ursula? There are so many things. <laughs> um, one thing that I actually am, that's sort of hot on my, on my brain today, this morning, actually, and something we're talking about in disobedience school right now, this week and last week, is knowing what we want. And this may come up, I don't know when this is going to air for you, or if it's going to be around the same time as Fierce Women Forum. But mm -hmm. um, people who are not socialized and conditioned at the kind of top of the you know, made up hierarchy of worthiness don't aren't necessarily encouraged to know their own desires. Mm, so right. like we can say you know, women, people of color, children, elderly, um, disabled people, fat people, people who don't speak English as their first language in the United States, like knowing what you want is disobedient. Like wanting anything is disobedient. And so knowing what you want is just a step away from wanting. Mm, um, yes. and, and wanting something uh, will upset the status quo because the status quo might not be working for you. Every time I talk with you, it's so thought provoking. I yes. hadn't really thought about that relationship between uh, being in the an underrepresented or, or underregarded group where um, people are not encouraged to even know what they want and how do you get what you want if you don't know what you want? I mean, it's, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a troubling thing to contemplate. Yeah. And, 
And how do you be a leader in that kind of environment as well when you don't even know what you yourself want? And I think as women and and folks in other underrepresented groups um, are really seeking opportunities for leadership, I think that might be problematic. What do you think? Problematic is such a sweet understatement. Um, mm. <laughs> when we're talking about leadership, because my, I'm actually, I'm learning about leadership now. So I, everything I say in the next five minutes may be subject to change over the next four weeks to four decades. Um, but my understanding of, of leadership is that people are following us toward a vision that we want to be a way shower and a support and a guide for. Mm. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean we know the way, but we have a vision that we want other people to follow. Mm -hmm. And that comes straight from Jen McCabe, which I may or may not have misquoted. But we have a vision that we want other people to follow. Not knowing what we want, what are people following? Right. It seems not just problematic, but, but tragic. Hmm. Like tragic for us in that we're like, where are we going? And then anybody who has the you know, poor judgment of following somebody who doesn't know what they want, we're going we're gonna to take people on a wild ride and have no idea where we're going to end up. Do you think that um, focusing on or having more clarity about right relationship is a way for leaders to have more clarity within themselves about what they're guiding people towards? I, I would say because in right relationship there's room for you, there's room for what you want. I don't, I don't know that there's, I don't know that there's leadership without room for you and what you want and your vision for, for what you want people to follow. Um, mm -hmm. Not to say that, that leadership requires right relationship. There's plenty of leadership that is clearly not in right relationship. Mm -hmm. um, but I wouldn't want to follow anyone who's not in right relationship with themselves and with me. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to follow someone with whom I am not in right relationship mm -hmm. where there's no room for me, or I know that it's not sustainable. Right. So, um, yeah, there's always so much in, in uh, what there's so much in what you just said. I'm just thinking about which, which thread to follow <laughs> there. Um, if if you have a leader who knows what they want or knows enough of what they want to at least initiate a path that other people inevitably um, affect as it evolves, how do you think that having right relationship really would change the culture in a and an organization or a company like that. And I don't know if that was too convoluted a question, but I'm, I'm 
I'm really curious because I've, I've been in organizations where right relationship is not held as a high value and it's not been a pleasant experience as an understatement. And, uh, but I think there are organizations where right relationship is really operating well and, and as fully as the capacity of the uh, imperfect humans in it have been able to, to conjure up. But, um, I mean, what, how do you, well, do, let me ask it this way. If companies were wanting to steer more in that direction, like what kinds of things would you, would you see in a company that was honoring right relationship or where there was moving in that direction? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, conversation, open conversation about what's important to everyone and what everyone's experiencing. And that doesn't necessarily mean like, okay, we're all having these really, you know, woo-woo feely conversations, which actually doesn't bother me at all. I like those conversations. But conversations where everyone is involved. And I think we've talked about Susan Scott before, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. She, she has something called a beach ball conversation model. Mm-hmm. Susan Scott's the author of the book Fierce Conversations and other books, but that's, that was the first one, I think, where she became more well-known. Yeah. So she has this, this I'm going to call it a nifty model. I never used the word nifty. I don't know where that came from. But this nifty little conversation <laughs> model. So 50s. Yeah, right? <laughs> called the beach ball conversation. And the, the premise or the idea behind the beach ball conversation is like a beach ball has all these different colored segments or stripes or what, I guess they're segments, not stripes, but on, in the beach ball model, everyone is standing or is positioned somewhere on the beach ball. And if you ask the person who's, who's positioned on the blue segment of the beach ball, what color the beach ball is, they're going to say blue. But if you ask the person who's on the orange segment of the beach ball what color the beach ball is, they're going to say orange Mm. and so on. So everybody's got their position on this beach ball and they're all looking down at the beach ball and they can't see the other side of the beach ball. They can only see the part that they're positioned on. And in right relationship, if, if these companies, if these organizations if these relationships are going to be sustainable, we have to be in communication about what the experience is to be like, or is to be on the other side of the beach ball. And if we're not willing to have those, those conversations that challenge our perspective, like, nope, I'm sorry, you're, you say the beach ball's blue, I say it's orange. If we're not willing to have those conversations where there's room for both of our experience to be true, and make decisions from that. We're going to have a real, I think that's when we get into these situations like you're talking about being in organizations where your experience is disregarded, your perspective is disregarded, um, what you believe is beneficial for the mission of your organization is disregarded, and it becomes a really crappy relationship to be in, your relationship with this organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's unfulfilling and not personally meaningful, and therefore it's hard to really bring your best work forward mm-hmm. and even to be present in an organization like that consistently. Yeah. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Um, 
I just to delve into it a little further, I you know, I know there's this sort of construct of the, the good girl or the nice guy. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think sometimes we hide behind this uh, thing of, well, we want to be respectful so we don't enter into what could be a contentious conversation or, or we want to respect the cohesion of the group and therefore don't bring that up because it's, it, you know, could potentially create a fracture and Mm -hmm. want to avoid that like the plague. Um, Is, is that something that that you see? And is that um, how, how would you, how would you address that kind of concern? Oh, this is, you just opened the door to something really exciting for me. Um, are you familiar with Tema Oaken and Ken Jones's article, White Supremacy Culture? No. Okay. I will, it's easy to Google. It's super easy to find. Um, and I will send you a link if you want one. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes as well. Okay, beautiful. So they outline, depending on which version of the article you pull up in Google, they outline between 11 and like 15 characteristics of white supremacy culture as it shows up in organizations. And it's, it's really brief. It's just a few lines on each one. But one of the, the ways that white supremacy culture shows up in organizations and in our relationships and um, sometimes in our politics, not so much recently, but this fear of open conflict mm-hmm. is, is one of the characteristics of supremacy culture where we are hesitant to tell the truth of our experience. We're hesitant to tell the truth of, um, you know, what we want. So here's, you know, what we want again. Um, so how is that, how is that the manifestation of a supremacy culture? Power always plays a role in this. Hmm. So imagine a relationship in which you have two people who have no discernible um, social or political power over one another. Mm-hmm it can be much, much easier to speak your mind. Right. Um, Where we tend to have power differentials, like say you're in a meeting and there's a CEO and there are um, a couple project managers, a couple business analysts and an admin, and the admin has a really important critique of a project that may not go over well, what is the likelihood that that admin is one, going to speak up and two, have their critique, you know, gratefully received Mm -hmm. in that meeting. So, I mean, this can show up in our personal relationships. Like patriarchy is such that there are, you know, plenty of relationships where I'm sure you can think of more than one heterosexual couple you know where there's a woman saying, oh, I don't know what I want for dinner. What do you want? It's okay. Like, I'll just have whatever. Mm. This shows up all the time where we, where we don't want to talk about politics at the dinner table because we don't want to upset somebody. Um, we don't want to, we don't like to say, some, say anything to somebody who has perhaps unwittingly 
slighted us or hurt our feelings. Um, this is not to say that we don't also simultaneously live in a warlike culture because we do that too. Mm. Um, these two things can both be true at the same time. But typically where we don't hold the privilege of making a fuss, we avoid open conflict because mm. we don't know so how do you, to navigate it. Mm. So what do you do about that? Mm. What kind of situation are we talking about? Let's go into one. <laughs> Well, I, I think the one you described is a great example. So you mm -hmm. have a meeting of folks that are in different uh, ranked positions, I guess, for lack of a better word, in an organization, and someone who's more uh, lower in the hierarchy is has a actually some substantive thing to say, but doesn't speak up, and, and the organization is missing out. The leader is missing out on a different perspective in. Um, you know, how do you, how do you as the admin person deal with that? How do you as a leader create an environment where that kind of thing is actually happens? We're getting now into culture, right? Because now this is not just a relationship between say an admin and a CEO. Now we've got the culture of the room. Now we're talking about the unspoken rules that everybody in the room is following. Right. Um, and culture, we all contribute to culture and leadership has a huge, huge weight in what culture actually sticks. So if you are the leader of a team or an organization and you want different perspectives, it's important to, to consciously intentionally cultivate an environment where you're welcoming those perspectives by being really really explicit about it like having what susan scott calls the beach ball conversation and it may not be as you know i'm going to use the word hokey i don't necessarily think the beach ball conversation is hokey but it might not be you know that that cute like hey we're going to have a beach ball conversation it might be hey i really really want everyone's perspective everyone's input matters. And so I'm going to ask for you to say whatever the thing is, and I'm going to take it into consideration, or I'm, mm -hmm. we're going to listen to it and discuss it. Um, rather than just having the expectation, like, oh, you know, if admin A over there had something that they wanted to say, I just assume they would say it, because we can't assume that. We can't assume that right. in, in these power dynamics that exist societally and in our organizations that people are going to take the risk of being shut down, rejected, retaliated against, um, dismissed. Mm. Like we can't just assume that people are ready to take that risk without being invited. Yeah. Well, and, and that kind of opens up an opportunity for real conversation mm -hmm. and um, yeah. Well, we, we tend, we've talked a lot about relationships between individuals and even relationships within groups. And I know you also talk about um, re relationship with the world. So what does it mean to be in relationship with the world? Mm. Oh, that's such a good question. I'm going to have to figure out a way to articulate this. Um, not so dissimilar from being in relationship with 
anything else in that when I say relationship, I mean literally as simply as the connection between two things hmm. or two or more things. So what is the connection with me in the world? And how I define the world might be very, very different from how you define the world, right? Hmm. So I might be talking about um, you know, all the humans in the world and and somebody else might be talking about the ecosystem of the world and somebody else might be thinking about the world in terms of like um you know economics and how resources are distributed and what what people are you know doing with them um some people might be thinking more cosmologically um some people might be thinking more spiritually um so i think how we how we understand the world is really really limited to our experience and things that we've learned. We, I can't, I can't even begin to know what your understanding of the world is without you telling me. And mm. even then, I may never ever understand what you understand and is an experience as the world. So my mm -hmm. relationship with the world is is uniquely my own. That doesn't mean that I'm not sharing a relationship or sharing in a collective experience also of the world with other people, with you and with the people right. around me. Right. Um, but yeah, what is my connection to it? How do I, the same questions that I would ask in any other relationship, like you know, how do I, how do I treat this relationship? Do I regard it? Do I give it, um, do I give it attention and care? Do like, is this something that is important to me? Is there room for me in this relationship? For a lot of us, there may not be room in, in a relationship with the world that very, very privileged people have. Privileged people in the world, like I'm saying this as though it's some objective thing, tend mm. to have, a, I mean, that's what privilege is. Like you have more room in the world. Mm. Uh, you have more like, freedom and agency in the world. and so where we are oppressed or marginalized or targeted one of one of the challenges is that there's less room in the world and one of our responsibilities is to find ways to make more room in the world for people mm. who are are not centered and and privileged mm. oh i love that description and it's the the perfect segue into the rapid round which is three questions i always ask about <laughs> impact at the end of these interviews so nervous. i'm sweating <laughs> <laughs> you have no reason to be concerned you you're well able to answer all these questions so the first one is what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact oh i'm so glad you asked this because we've already talked about this one i'm like oh i know the answer um is that it it always and only happens in relationship Impact mm -hmm. literally cannot happen in a vacuum. I love that. The second question is, what's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? Cultivating relationships, like having, having conversations with people, especially people who are different from me and have different ideas and thoughts and, and priorities and experiences. Hmm. That's great. 
I, yeah, I love that expansive view. The last question is, what's one insider piece of advice you'd share with another business owner who's asking themselves, how can I positively affect my own environment and the larger world even? How can I have impact? Identify what you want mm. and move toward it. Love the concision of that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, James Olivia, thank you so much for sharing what you have today. I, I find your perspectives, they're always so thought-provoking and really help me to look at things in a, in a new and different way and in an expansive way so that it allows more room for relationships with uh, all kinds of different people, which, which I love. So thank you so much for being here and sharing all of that. Thank you, Ursula. I love our conversations and I'm grateful to be here. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Um, my website is inquisitivehuman.com. Mm -hmm. And my Instagram, I post a lot on Instagram. I do a lot of my like just teaching there because it's fun and I get a lot of interaction there. But inquisitive underscore human is my Instagram handle. So those are the two places that I'm, I'm most attentive. Great. Well, thank you, James Olivia, for the work you're doing in the world. Likewise, thank you. Thank you for joining me. If you want to discover more about your impact, you can schedule a business impact assessment with me. That's 75 minutes of focus on your and your company's impact and how you can increase it. Just email me at Ursula at workalchemy.com to schedule your business impact assessment. It's my gift to you. Join us for more episodes, subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Rate and review it on Apple Podcasts if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of leaders like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.